Okay, I just realized that um, the hiatus that we just took was in the middle of reading this book. So um, I still don't really have like a recording studio, so the sound quality is going to suffer a bit. But anyway, um, I want to finish it, so let's get into it. World Museum and World's Fair. Absolutely museum-like. We can be what we want nowadays, but just no longer absolument moderne. We don't have to be more avant-garde than the world to obtain a total view of it when we follow its orbit. On the contrary, the time has come to be absolutely museum-like to deal with the problem of the world as a totality. Anybody who wants to understand what it means today to come into the world must realise what it means to visit a museum. Museum nausea and world dizziness. The museum is the preschool of world estrangement. Human beings are creatures that come into the world. Only a subsection of those who come into the world will become museum visitors. Coming into the world and going to a museum are not only very different activities, but are also contrasted in terms of very difficult degrees of general participation. My proposition is that under the logic of modern times, these processes, coming into the world and going to a museum, converge. How does this happen? We would begin with arguments from statistics and social sciences. Modernised societies are societies in which education is compulsory and Next to schools, museums are becoming increasingly important among the institutions of modern compulsory learning. It follows that a young person in our civilization has as little chance of avoiding a museum outing as avoiding school sports. Learning imperial foreign languages and calculating percentages. Coming into the world ends up with going to school. This is a statement that no longer sounds exaggerated to us. In our part of the world, school has become so inevitable and so ubiquitous that living and going to school have had to develop synonymously. School is a metaphor for the world, and life has a direct illuminating effect in a society in which schools stand on every corner as institutions of cognitive capital. When people talk about lifelong learning... The eternal pupil inside us nods knowingly from personal experience. Something comparable exists nowadays in terms of museums. Even if the museum as a metaphor for the world still sounds rather precious and is frowned on as a metaphor for life. Who would ever admit not only that human beings drag themselves through an exhibition now and then, but also that the process of coming into the world could resemble a museum visit in the first place? Has historicization left us in poor shape, in such poor shape that museums have advanced in our lifetime to become an absolute metaphor, similarly to the way that the labyrinth, the theatre, the house, the book, the school and the spool have become indispensable words, words in our world picture? In that case, well, how should I argue if I want to explain that talking about the world as a museum is more than a foam bubble in metropolitan chit-chat, that it actually represents a rhetorical figure of value in the context of the history of civilization? Well, let us speak openly. 
if the museum is accepted as an expression for the totality of the world or a world feeling, it means we are in the terrain of Gnosticism. The museum is a neo-Gnostic world metaphor that first appeared with the concept of necessity during the self-completion of modernity and has consistently gained plausibility since then. People who use this metaphor are infecting our feeling about the world in general with an easily understandable and specific, specific museum nausea and are naming the strange totality they live in after the museum, the best-known model of alienation in the culture. The word, museum, can be used as an attack on most of the content of life today, which is indifferent, half-dead and random. At the same time, the word museum hints at the tragedy of the objective spirit and heightens suspicion that the past is always more powerful than the present and that life never really matches up to what has already been lived. In his brooding thoughts about the problem of museums, Paul Valéry says that our heritages smother us. He goes on to say that we necessarily have to give up. What can we do? We become superficial. Generalised criticisms of museums is also a final stage of any cultural critique that has blamed existing forms of life since the late 18th century for our inability to cast off a particular sense of alienation. The older the culture, the more alien it appears to newcomers, like a Kafkaesque authority and a Hegelian heap of skulls. I once tried to invert the cultural criticism that has become world criticism to find out what happens when alienation from the world stems not from the fallibility of external relationships, but from internal dizziness and the absence of a sense of belonging. Could it be that it is not the world that is alien to us, but that we are alien to the world? Is it the world's fault that it can be seen from the absurd perspective of a museum? Or is it the visitor's fault that their local history museum suddenly seems foreign? We should probably not ask questions like that. A better solution might be to start from a relationship between the ego and the world that contains the possibility to create otherness from the outset. It seems to me that people estranged from the world blame the strangeness of the world because of a failure of synchronization between the existence of the world and the discovery of the world we make when we enter it. A deep sense of strangeness is an effect of mistakes in our original naturalization. This can lead to many of us acquiring citizenship of being in an incomplete sense. The world becomes a museum if I have to stay in it without knowing how I arrived here. It becomes museum-like, alien, objective, block-like and rebuffing when the joyful energy of the initial arrival and discovery has become rigidified in my existence. When the continuum of permanent birth is broken, it, it inexorably gives the impression that the world seems to have been there before us forever, as the oldest prearranged setup in the world, a miserable fait accompli devoid of light. Then the world becomes the bedrock of facts which have existed the longest and which will inevitably shatter all those latecomers. It must appear to us as the immense sum of the stored past that has not passed, and our present life, which has arrived much too late and is limping along behind, finds it impossible to keep up. <laughs>
in this manner, world becomes a concept expressing human beings' resignation at the incredible advance lead of things. When Heidegger speaks of being in the world, the phrase carries echoes of human tardiness in relation to the alien cosmos. It is also impossible to ignore the threat that in competition with the harsh facts that existed before us, we have only been given a last chance through death. Only to the extent that our own death means the end of the world do we catch up with the world and become extinct together with it. In other words, it makes us synchronous and on the same level with the world for the first time. Otherwise, to borrow Heidegger's notorious terminology, we would have no choice but to look bravely into our fateful thrownness. Thrown into where? Into something that tastes like nothing? or nothing that appears as something, whichever you like. In any case, in a context of older, more powerful, long-established authorities and laws that simply remain to be found. The older form of Gnosticism used the concept of the world prism symbolically to define this basic sensitivity of human beings. The Gnostic viewpoint says that humans are beings that have fallen into the cosmos, the dazed survivors of a metaphysical crash landing. According to their character, which in this context means their history, human beings are prisoners of matter, and their emotional entanglements, wishes and desires have led to their enchainment to the rock face of existence. It would be a miracle if modernity, which revises everything, had not issued the prison regulations for people imprisoned in being. Modern penitential reform has liberalised ontology with the result that nowadays the world prison of late antiquity has evolved into the postmodern world museum. The conditions of imprisonment in the leads of matter have been modified. We are allowed prison leave and sex and television in our cell. And there's a footnote here. But a footnote to where... The lead. Uh, okay, so the footnote is for the lead. Translator's note. The Leeds was an 18th century prison directly under the roof of the Doge's Palace in Venice. The name comes from the lead roof tiles of the palace. Ah, the Leeds. Okay. The conditions of imprisonment in the Leeds of matter have been modified. We are allowed prison leave and sex and television in our cell. Our transcendental homesickness has become a kind of cultural unease and our hatred against the created and completed world for being full of bad things has turned into a lack of respect for the classics and determination to use new writings against the old established texts, if not to render them unwritten, at least to shake them up, distort and parody them. The present form of Gnosticism is trying to break out of the prison of the original text to return to the heaven of the unregulated writing hand. The impatient psychotics among us want to slough off the old skin of the world and risk a direct ascension to heaven. Cautious and resilient people make do with subsidies and are content when they manage to remodel the straitjacket imposed by the world into a personal item of clothing. If we are already condemned to be in the world like strangers in a museum, then it seems a matter of metaphysical and museological health not to hang around eternally as a lost visitor on the edge of the world. It is advisable, as soon as we have got over the first shock, 
to change sides and join the museum makers. Museums themselves can even become their own museums to a modest degree, and friendship with museums is a new beginning for the discreet friendship with the world that is part of the cheerful attitude of recuperated Gnostics. A good example of this comes from Emil Chiorin, who reports on one of the most macabre and happiest museum visits of our century in an essay called Paleontology. Quite a long quote here. An unforeseen shower one autumn day drove me in the Museum of Natural History for a while. I was to remain there, as a matter of fact, for an hour, two hours, perhaps three. It has been months since this accidental visit, and yet I am not about to forget those empty sockets that stare at you more insistently than eyes. That rummage sale of skulls. The automatic sneer on every level of zoology. Nowhere is one better served with respect to the past. Here the possible seems inconceivable or cracked. One gets the impression that the flesh was eclipsed on its advent, that in fact it never existed at all, that it could not have been fastened to bones so stately, so imbued with themselves. The solidity, the seriousness of the skeleton, that seems absurdly provisional and frivolous. It flatters, it gratifies the addict of precariousness I am. That is why I am so comfortable in this museum where everything encourages the euphoria of a universe swept clean of the flesh, the jubilation of an afterlife. End quote. <clears throat> the temptation of the museum has never been so vividly expressed. A person who loves museums rejects the world as a deadly imposition. Only somebody who can see the dead as equals can easily accept the world as home, for somebody who feels drawn to the dead, there is no better place in this world. People who feel at home in museums, on the other hand, have found the place in the middle of the world where a person can be present, can be here on the spot as if he or she were already gone. With unerring certainty, Turin's Gnostic genius has discovered the Natural History Museum as the place where being in the world offers an exit from the world of its own accord. Being surrounded by primeval bones lessens the error of coming into the world, and the Gnostic feels at home among his or her own kind. But the jubilation afterlife means the pre-cosmic jubilation for an existence that can remain on its own as long as there are no external relationships and no harsh facts, nor any world history and humans that make it. The museum is at its most dead, where it most clearly shows the qualities of a pre-existential womb, close to the calcified bones of primeval animals. The Gnostic spirit feels the mineral mother, the earth. Our museology has to return to that spirit to understand what has been going on for the past 200 years or so, as the princes, the ministers, the grand bourgeoisie, and finally, the democratic educators set up countless artificial caves of the past and sent whole populations thronging through them. Well, I'm sure this won't sound as good as it did when I was reading it inside an actual sound recording chamber, but I think this is the method I'm going to use for reading the rest of this book.